The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good morning, Fathom. Those online, I'm Nate Wirtz. For those of you who don't know me, uh, an elder candidate here, uh, and I have the privilege of sharing God's word with you this morning. Um, Now, has anyone ever experienced deja vu in their life? I can't remember a specific time in my life, but I know that I've had it just based on whether it's triggered by food, a taste, or a smell, something that brings me back where my mind instantly tricks me into thinking that I've experienced this before. Well, I hope today you don't feel that way as we jump into the text. Between Chris's sermon on the feeding of the 5,000, and I'm speaking on the feeding of the 4,000, and Kyle's dad jokes on Father's Day, you may feel like you've experienced this present situation before, but... I challenge you to not check out quite yet. Lucky for you, I decided to come up with some new material. If you've been following along for the last few months, you've seen, we've walked through the book of Matthew and we've seen Jesus' ministry as it expands outside of Jerusalem uh, and goes more into um, the Gentile regions. Where we pick up today, Jesus is on the south side of the Sea of Galilee, according to scholars, is in a predominantly Gentile area. A couple weeks ago, Kyle introduced this passage Uh, And we saw Jesus healing many with many ailments for days on end. Now, this is a very desolate place, so we can't think of the Avs Parade or places downtown with large events where there's lots of vendors, lots of food, and lots of shelter. No, I want to pick on one of Chris's favorite places to pick on, Pueblo. A desolate place, not a lot to do, not a lot of food or options to stay. So there's not a whole lot going on. Let's dive into the scripture to see uh, where Jesus is taking his ministry. We pick up in verse 32 of chapter 15, which is on page 821 in the hardback black Bibles underneath your seats. Uh, for those of you who do attend Fathom regularly, you know that we don't put verses on screens a ton as we wanna have the scripture in your hands via whether the black Bibles or uh, your Bible app on your phone or tablet, or if you're online, uh, there's the Bible button in the corner there. So Matthew 15, verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending, sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Megadon. Now, we definitely see some similarities between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. There's large crowds in a desolate area, and there's no food to be found. But I want to spend today picking up on some differences, some similarities, but really just kind of pick apart this chapter. We see in 1532, Jesus has compassion on the crowds. Now, this is a predominantly Gentile crowd. This may have been a bit of a shock to the disciples as a bulk of Jesus' ministry has been to the Jews and in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. We'll come back to this point in a bit. Jesus has spent those days teaching and healing, as as I mentioned. The crowd was with him, and although I would assume there was some food shared along the way, 
Jesus is clearly concerned about the well-being of the people. They've exhausted their resources and are starting to reach a point of desperation, even if it's just Jesus that notices this. Let's pick back up in verse 33. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? The disciples questioned this. Even after they had just recently experienced the feeding of the 5,000, I'm a bit surprised by their question. However, we'll discuss in a bit why we shouldn't be too surprised. One, of their, one part of their question that I was most surprised by was their emphasis of we. Where are we to get the food? Their emphasis is on their skill set and their abilities. They are beyond their own capabilities at this point. And this is where their self-reliance and omission of God's goodness makes them completely overlook the situation at hand. Them throwing we in there is an, also a common mistake that we make to this day, thinking that Jesus needs us. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but Jesus didn't need the disciples to accomplish his mission back then, and he doesn't need us now. Jesus graciously, as Chris has, Chris has mentioned before, invites us into his ministry where we aren't needed. But why did the disciples not anticipate this miracle that is about to happen? They have seen it before, something very, very similar. They should have been having at least a slight bit of deja vu here. Let's continue on in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. Now at this point, I would think that Peter would be leaning over to John and whispering, hey, can't quite put my finger on it. Something seems eerily familiar. No, that didn't happen, or at least it's not in the text. Uh, but let's take a step back and look at a few different possibilities as it relates to the, the disciples not seeing this coming. Based on the commentaries that I spent the most time in, there were three main theories surrounding this passage and the disciples' ignorance as to Jesus' upcoming miracle. The disciples first saw this feeding as a symbol of the messianic banquet, according to some. Now, the messianic banquet was referenced throughout the entire Old Testament as a place and time in which God would partake with his people in a feast with the Messiah. Since the first feeding was with a predominantly Jewish audience, that symbolism would make sense. However, this miracle took place on the southeast region of the sea, as I mentioned, which is predominantly Gentile. Some theorize, theorize the disciples refused to extend the banquet to the non-believers, to the Gentiles. And although I do think this passage has references to the messianic banquet, I don't think that this is what the disciples are hung up on. Another theory is a reference to John 6, 26, and Jesus rebuking the crowds for just wanting food. The disciples were annoyed with them at this point, and they wanted to have Jesus back, they theorize now. They weren't gonna be the ones to break and give in to the people's desire or need for food. Let me read John 6, 25 through 27 real quick, referencing that. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you were not seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. 
Now this comes on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000, which is in all gospels, as Chris had mentioned, and people are desperately searching for Jesus. However, Jesus is starting to question these people specifically in this group, question their hearts and motives. This may have been cause for the disciples not to jump to the assumption that Jesus will perform a similar miracle now. However, I lean towards the third theory in these commentaries and the probable reason and the one that I want to spend some time on today. The theory is that it is their unbelief and lack of recognition of God's continued goodness. The thought that it was a one-time instance and will not happen again. In the next chapter, verse, chapter 16, verse nine, Jesus again reiterates the disciples' continued lack of recognition and remembrance of the miracles. There's a complete lack of focus and recognition of God's power and authority. If you are familiar with the Bible, you'll notice that this theme is very common throughout. We see this with the Israelites in the Old Testament as they march the Old Testament in constant disbelief. We see this as we studied 1 Samuel a few months ago and the life of King Saul and how he constantly doubted God's provisions and God's guidance as God put him as the king. We see this in the lives of the disciples as they have front row seats to all these miracles. And yet they still have continued lack of recognition that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. Now, it's easy to read through the Bible, and especially stories like this one, and think to ourselves and judge these characters, how on earth could they miss this? How could they not see this coming? How could the Israelites forget the plagues that brought them out of Egypt or the parting of the Red Sea? The manna, 10 commandments, Jericho, and so on. Those are some pretty big ones. How could Saul forget his miraculous encounters with the prophet Samuel when he was chosen to be king or the many times God miraculously spared their lives from the Philistines? Or as I mentioned, the disciples, as they have seen miracle after miracle, whether healing or the previous feeding of the 5,000, how could they not see this coming? However, we also see this play out in our own lives. Even when God's miracles are happening all around us, it is still so easy to completely fail to recognize God's goodness. It is far too easy for us to rely on self and think, I got this, and put our hand up to God and look straight ahead and remind him, nope, I got this. When it is our eyes that should be fixed on Christ with our hands humbly open to him, acknowledging, no, no. He's already got this. You see, the disciples' posture and our posture today is everything in these moments. With the disciples, as with the disciples, God is with us, right in front of us. Even when we aren't looking for it, God is good. This leads me to my first point of the passage. How often do we forget God's goodness? Now I'm speaking first and foremost to myself in all of this, as throughout my entire life, God has given me and shown me glimpses of his goodness. Time and time again, I have forgotten and allowed crisis to cloud my thoughts. It is easy to judge all these characters of the Bible until we take a step back and examine that we are forgetting of how God has been good to us. Back in 2015, not long after me and Amy had moved uh, from Indiana to Colorado, away from our tight-knit communities, our friends, families, everything that I had known my entire life, 
Amy had started to experience some health problems. Now, Amy is very active and healthy, so pretty much the opposite of me. So when she was having health issues, of course, when I have health issues, everybody's like, well, yeah, that's expected. Uh, When she was having health issues, it was cause for concern. So the first time she passed out early one morning before heading into work, we didn't think too much of it. Amy, of course, thought she was invincible, as she does. Uh, I was skeptical, but chose to be cautiously optimistic, as I tend to do. A few weeks later, this happened again, and I insisted Amy go see the doctor. We went to the doctor, and the doctor thought, maybe low blood sugar, uh, maybe you guys should change up your morning routine, change up the breakfast and Amy's diet. Simple enough. We game plan, changed some things in regards to Amy's diet, changed our morning routines, changed some things that we thought would positively affect her health. Well, the third time Amy passed out, I was fortunate enough to be there. Although it's never a fortunate occurrence when you see your spouse go unconscious in front of you. We have been doing everything in our power to fix the crisis we were facing with Amy's health. We changed her diet. We went and sought professional help and guidance. We paid more attention to Amy's morning habits and morning routines surrounding her passing out. After this third instance, I began escalating the situation with both Amy and the doctors, as I had now been thrust abruptly into the deep end of the situation. Again, sought medical experts' advice and tried to coach Amy more. For those of you who know Amy know how much she loves to be coached and told what to do. She just didn't realize how much of a blessing I was being to her. (laughs) Doctors came back with similar opinions and suggestions on how to fix this, how to fix this crisis we were in. Doctors didn't quite take it as seriously as us until the morning after Thanksgiving when I get a frantic call from Amy and I could instantly hear fear and confusion in her voice. I instantly forgot all the things God had done for us in the past, all the different ways that he had saved us or showed up for us in years past. The next few minutes felt like an eternity as I sped down 25, not knowing what I would find and trying to mentally game plan what I could do for the unknown situation ahead. I prayed for Amy to be okay and for things to not be as bad as I anticipated. Amy had had a seizure driving during rush hour on 25, crossed over four lanes of traffic and into the median. I had no idea as I was speeding there, this was God's goodness for us. This is what would make the doctors take us seriously. I wasn't focused on the times that God had spared us or saved us before. No, I was focused on my current crisis. I wasn't thinking and praying to Jesus with open hands saying, hey, you've saved us before. Here we are again. No, I was planning on how I could save us from this helplessness, how I could save this situation. Well, I didn't have the skill set, ability, or resources to fix this. Amy came away, praise the Lord, a little rattled from the situation with a little spilled coffee on herself, which was probably the part she was most upset about was the spilled coffee. The car had minor damages totaling under $500. God's goodness, once again. At this point, I was hit like a ton of bricks, thinking back to all the times God had shown up in our lives. Once again, God is good. 
God's goodness doesn't materialize the same way as our expectations. And I'm truly thankful God doesn't wait for us to begin to look for his goodness or even recognize his goodness when it's there. No, God is so good that it's automatically there, gently reminding us, hey, I got this. Remember, I've done this before. As we saw a few weeks ago when Kyle spoke on Jesus healing the multitudes, and as we continue to see throughout the gospels, Jesus is constantly healing those around us. This is a clear sign, and Chris has mentioned before, that God allows us to have pain, and he is still good. A presence of pain and suffering, as Amy and I, as well as everyone in this room, I'm sure, has experienced, does not mean that there is a lack of goodness from God. Now, jumping back into the passage, I would assume at this point, it starts to click for the disciples and they begin to realize, oh yeah, we've been down this road before. However, as I mentioned before, the disciples don't seem to be quick learners. As we see this referenced again in the next chapter, Jesus needed to remind them again of the great miracle in Matthew 16, five through 12. This also points to the fact of there being two separate instances of Jesus feeding the 5,000 or feeding multitudes. Now let's read on in verse 35. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Jesus again, as Chris mentioned several weeks ago, includes the disciples in his plan, even when they didn't recognize his power. In the moment, God still graciously involves us. Let's keep reading the first part of 37. And they all ate and were satisfied. And I'm gonna stop right there. They all ate and were satisfied. Throughout scripture, there's a, there's a theme that only God can satisfy us. Only he can quench our thirst. Only God can fulfill us. We see this again in this feeding of the 4,000, as we saw in the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus continues to satisfy those he ministers to. He meets their needs even when they aren't looking for him to do so. He asserts himself to show them only he can satisfy the prophet Isaiah, as Justin read this morning, prophesies of this in Isaiah 25, six through nine. Let me read. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You see, only God satisfies us. In the end, there's only one that can provide that complete satisfaction. Jesus Christ in his life, his death, and resurrection provides the only path to fully satisfy us. Where do we look for satisfaction? 
Maybe our careers. What career path is most fulfilling? Are we fulfilled in our current position? Do we need to advance in our company? Is this where we find satisfaction? And if we don't find it there, do we go to the next job seeking satisfaction? I think we've seen this play out across the board since COVID. People have coined it the great resignation. It is true. Many people have left their jobs in the past couple of years for various reasons. In my line of work, I get to have conversations daily with people who are unsatisfied with their jobs for a variety of reasons. Now, let me be clear. I think there's very valid reasons for wanting to change jobs or careers. And satisfaction in your work is important. However, that's very different than searching for your life's satisfaction and your overall satisfaction, hoping to fill that void with your job. With that being said, I think one thing that COVID did expose in many people was a lack of overall satisfaction in their life. People were stuck at home, having to face themselves in the mirror more and more each and every day. I, of course, chose to stop looking in the mirror. Wasn't a pretty sight. That's a whole different story. The more people were forced to slow down and evaluate themselves, they started to realize they were not satisfied with themselves. Doing an audit of one's life, one of the easier big things to change is one's job. People began to realize how unsatisfied they were and said, job's got to go. The next one will be fulfilling. Well, I think we may see in the next couple of years that same group of people coming back, realizing they are still unsatisfied. They didn't find it in that next job. And now they again begin their search to find their satisfaction. But then what can they change? Do they change relationships? Boyfriends, girlfriends, even spouses? Do people change their friend groups, their community, their neighborhoods that they live in? Do they change their church community? Do we alienate people in our lives to try and find satisfaction? Do we cling to others, hoping they will bring, bring satisfaction and be the source of that satisfaction that we are so desperately craving? Guess what? It's not gonna fix it. Do we look for material things? Do we look to buy more things, bigger toys, new clothes, cars, houses, anything that's gonna bring that momentary satisfaction? All of these are traps that are so easy to fall into. But in the end, they still leave us longing for more. None of these things on their own or combined can come close to scratching the surface of being truly satisfied as Christ satisfies us it would have been a lot easier to go to Christ first if we have found this satisfaction through Christ. I know that I have. But where are we pointing people to, those around us? Are we pointing them to a new job? Are we encouraging them to change their scenery or where they live? Are we pointing them in all the wrong directions? Or are we pointing them to the only place that can truly satisfy. Are our lives a reflection of this? In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, all those things that I mentioned previously can be something that provides satisfaction. They can be good. 
but they are not the origin of our satisfaction because we were made for another world. We were specifically designed to be satisfied by one and only one. We were created to be satisfied by Christ alone. Do others look at our lives wondering how we can be so satisfied and think it's gotta be because of their job or how successful they are or that new house? Or in Amy's case, do they look at her spouse and say, well, she hit the jackpot. It's gotta be that. (laughs) Sorry, babe. Uh, Or do they look at your life and see that the only thing that sustains and satisfies us is our relationship with Jesus Christ? Don't worry, self-reflection at this point as I was prepping for the sermon was very tough for me. It's not easy or fun to digest and search for where we're coming up short and where we are trying to find our satisfaction. Let's continue to read in verse 37. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Now, as, many par- as in many parts of the Bible, numbers have an important significance. As I was reading up on this passage, some commentators speculate the number of loaves and baskets picked up as a symbol of completion, number seven. It is used to symbolize that throughout the Bible. Some have various views on what that may stand for in this instance, in this passage. I tend to agree with those who think this is a reference to Jesus' ministry now reaching both the Jews and the Gentiles and completing his outreach. Jesus' primary ministry, as I had stated, had been to the Jews. However, due to other circumstances, he had moved outside of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas before his triumphal entry, where we see Holy Week, and as he heads back to Jerusalem. Jesus spent some time in the Gentile regions teaching and performing miracles. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And although the Jews had this grand idea of the Messiah's return, in a way only God can, he fulfills his promise in ways we least expect. The Jews wanted him to come back and save them from the Roman empire once and for all. That's not what Jesus had in mind. However, now we see due to the rejection of the Jewish leaders who are now ironically beginning to form strategic alliances with Roman rulers, Jesus is taking his ministry to the Gentiles who are desperate for him and his teaching. Let's finish up the passage, Matthew 15, 38 through 39. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Megadon. Oh, for those of you who don't, uh, don't know me and Amy very well, um, it's been uh, quite an adventure the past three years. Um, for those of you who do know us, know that all that we've experienced and gone through uh, in foster care and adoption and everything in between. I'll give a brief backstory for those who, who aren't aware of, of the things that we've gone through. Um, we've received, we received a surprise call in 2019, and by we, I mean Amy, because they know to call Amy first. They don't call me because I actually take time to process things. Amy says yes right away. <laughs> That's why I love her. We get a call for an emergency placement of two twin two-year-old boys who had experienced severe physical trauma. Amy, of course, as I said, instantly said yes, gave me a call after that, and said I should probably come home from work as soon as possible. 
She graciously gave me two hours notice before we welcomed these little boys into our home. Fast forward to the spring of 2020, when a little thing called COVID entered the scene. We find out, surprise, boys are about to have a baby brother. It was quickly determined the baby would need to be in an alternative home. We instantly agreed to take him in as soon as he was born. We've been on this journey for three years now, two of which have been spent in a constant battle working to keep Zeke in a safe place and hopefully adopt him. We've spent sleepless nights awake with him while he was sick or needed extra care, as any parent would do for their little one. We've also spent countless nights in tears, crying out to God to keep this sweet little boy safe. We've spent day after day after day in gut-wrenching agony at the prospect we will lose him. Now, I would give anything for this little boy, including without hesitation my own life, to secure the safety and well-being. So much of it is out of our hands. We went through this process before, although it was much smoother with Anna a few years ago. There was still a lot of uncertainty, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of hair loss, but God walked with us throughout the entire process. God is walking with us now. If Zeke wasn't placed in our home from birth, I'm truly not sure he would be alive today. God has watched over him far before we knew about it. We know full well that God is good and only God can satisfy. Are there times throughout this process where it's been easy to forget God's goodness and faithfulness? Absolutely. Are there times where we've struggled and lost sight of the satisfaction that we can only find in God? Yeah. You see, Chris references this often. God never promised us easy, but he promised us that he was, is, and always will be good. He promised us that in him, in him only, and through him, we will be satisfied. See, Amy and I are not alone, and I'm not naive enough to think that, and I, I know of people currently in this church that are going through situations way worse than ours. This is where we have the opportunity to lean into our relationship with Christ. Again, this doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. It is not a promise of instant healing. This is a promise that God is good and that only he can satisfy us. You see, our culture preaches self-reliance and self-promotion. However, this goes against everything that the Bible teaches. It is all too easy to say, we've got this, or to do anything to elevate oneself. If we take the same posture as the disciples in this passage, it offers nothing but a depressing outlook that in crisis, when we turn to our own talents and abilities, we'll come up empty. However, when we adjust our attitudes and focus to God, we realize this is the only way to navigate crisis or everyday life. My prayer is that our church will live lives in recognition of what God has done for us and that only he can satisfy us. Let me pray.
Dear God, I just uh, just want to come before you and just thank you. Thank you for this church. Uh, thank you for for our country, where we are allowed to um, to come together in corporate worship. God, I just pray uh, that you will walk with each and every one of us as we leave here uh, and as we go out into the world. God, that we will remember your goodness. God, that we will rely on you for our satisfaction, and that we won't uh, rely on our own abilities that we always come up short with. God, I just pray that you will um, bless our time after the service and um, being with friends and family this weekend uh, as we celebrate the fourth, God, that you will just uh, allow us to hold one another tight um, and just be thankful for what you've given us and blessed us with. In your name, amen.